My name is Jim Mullins. I am uh, one of the pastors here. It's good to be with you this morning, uh, worshiping Jesus together, celebrating Advent, the coming of Jesus, both in his first coming and his second coming. Um, before I dive in today, um, I want to ask you a question that you can discuss with, with some people around you. Um, if there was the most exciting moment from your childhood, what would it be? What was the most exciting moment from your childhood? Not like the best, but like the most exciting where you just got excited about it. So go ahead and discuss with a few people and I'll bring us back in just a moment. All right, let's go ahead and bring it in. Now that you've had a moment to, uh, to share your exciting moment, you can get excited about your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand. Someone will bring you a Bible. If you have a Bible, go ahead and look at Luke chapter 2. Open to Luke chapter 2, and we'll be looking at this, this passage that we've continued to look at over the last several weeks as we have celebrated Advent. Each week of Advent, we've been looking at a different word that represents the, the, the importance of the incarnation and the coming of Jesus. We've looked at hope, we've looked at joy, and today we're going to look at peace. And so let me go ahead and let us pray. Father, we just pray that we would have a sense that you are here among us, that you are the God of peace, the Prince of peace, that you would give us a real sense of the beauty of the gospel of peace, and that you um, would shape us even today uh, to launch us into the things that are coming in, in the next couple weeks with family and with the year 2020. And we are grateful that the, the first and second coming of Jesus mean everything for those things. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, well, I'm going to start today by telling you my most exciting moment when I, from when I was a kid. One of my favorite memories was going to a baseball game. And as a little kid, I was infatuated with baseball. I thought only two things existed in the world, eating and baseball. These were, this was life. And, and I knew that not only was baseball amazing, there was one player that you wanted to see if you were gonna watch baseball, Jose Canseco. Big muscles, fast, he was cool, he had a mullet and he rocked it. And we finally got to see an actual Major League Baseball game, our very first one. I was going with my brother, we were gonna to get to see Jose Canseco play for the A's. And we were so excited. We were so excited to see this, this icon of baseball in the 80s and 90s play the game that we were, we were like telling everybody about it, our family, even as we're walking in the stadium, we're like, Jose Canseco, right? Yeah, we're here to see him. We, we got into the stadium so amped up. We had our little mitt on, our, our, our glove that we could catch a foul ball if needed. We weren't even close to anywhere where you could catch a foul ball. We were looking for him, trying to find Jose Canseco, warming up, and then we finally saw him. And then, if our reverence for Jose Canseco wasn't enough, the entire stadium stood up and in unison sung a song in homage of Jose Canseco. It was incredible. 
my brother and I were looking at each other. Are they really doing this right now? Is he that good of a player? And as we're talking about it, trying to figure out what's going on, my stepdad looks over and he is laughing his head off. And he goes on to explain that the first line of that song is not, Jose, can you see? <laughs> but it's the Star Spangled Banner. And they weren't talking about uh, rockets, red glare, and bombs bursting in the air as if he's hitting home runs that are that exciting. They were singing about America. And to be honest, we thought, okay, that's kind of cool too, but they should sing a song to Jose Canseco. <laughs> and it's interesting that based on our context and on our expectations and everything that we had going into that game, we completely misread and distorted the lyrics of the Star Spangled Banner. And in a similar way, today, we're reading a passage, a passage that John got us started on last week that has a little clip of a song, a little snap of some lyrics about the angels in heaven singing about peace on earth. And with all the ways that we can come with our caricatures and our perceptions of what peace is, we may misread what is being said, mishear what is being said in the lyrics of that song in a similar way that my brother and I turned the star-spangled banner into a song that was an homage to Jose Canseco. And so let's read. What we see here in, in, in Luke chapter 2, which John talked about last week, is this incredible announcement of the angel coming to these shepherds, these blue-collar workers, encountering them out in the field and announcing that the Messiah, the one that they had waited for, the kingly figure in the line of David that they had waited for to come and to make things right was finally here. And it was coming through the, the birth of this baby, Jesus. And then in verse 13, it has this profound moment that would be easy to overlook. It says, and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. So you have this one angel making the announcement and then all of a sudden the, the veil's pulled back and then there's myriads, thousands, a whole army of angels in the sky singing this powerful song of heaven commemorating this moment that's happening right then. And these angels, don't think of like little chubby babies with wings. Think of powerful warrior angels singing with a booming voice about God giving glory and about his peace, the peace and the flourishing that exists in heaven coming to earth through this baby that's being born. And the shepherds got to listen in on the, the soundtrack of heaven as these angels are singing about this incredible moment. This passage here is why we often associate Advent and Christmas with this phrase, peace on earth. But just like we brought a lot of assumptions to our baseball game and Jose Canseco, we often, when we hear the word peace, if there's one part of the song, one lyric that we can tend to distort based on our caricatures or our presuppositions about what peace is, it would be 
this word and this phrase, peace on earth. We tend to look, when we think of peace, we think of it, we have some caricatures of peace that tend to alter the way that we view this word and then therefore misread the biblical word peace or shalom. So let's talk about some of those, uh, some of those caricatures. Number one is the UN type of peace. Oftentimes when we think of peace, we think of it as geopolitical um, situations, wars stopping, people in blue helmets bringing a ceasefire between conflicting people. And while that's a part of what the Bible gets at, it, it certainly encompasses that, um, it's, it's much deeper than that as well. Other times when we think of peace, we think of hippies, right? You think of someone with a tambourine, doesn't shower a ton, lives in a van, and they're talking a lot about peace, and it feels ethereal, and it feels nice, but it doesn't feel connected to real life. And I think because of that, sometimes we even almost feel silly to throw the word peace around a little bit. If you're a hippie in here, no offense. Um, the second kind of, or the third kind of peace would be the tea aisle peace. Now, you may not get it at first, but if you ever walk down a tea aisle at a grocery store, I want you to pay attention to the promises that these teas are making for your life. That you're gonna have serenity and calm, it's gonna take away your anxiety, and it speaks that like some crushed up leaves are gonna bring this internal state of no anxiety and no fear. And then the final caricature of peace I can say this because I have a family background here, is what I would say is Midwestern peace. Midwestern peace, if you don't know, is Midwestern folks, of which my family can, a lot of my family comes from, can tend to be very polite and not be too direct, not say really hard things, and, and be very accommodating. And this is a type of peace, peace faking rather than peacemaking. It's about keeping the peace. <laughs> while there's some tension that exists underneath. For example, I'm gonna talk about my mother-in-law here. I, I told my mother-in-law once, I apologized to her because I was sick, I was very sick, and then I gave her whatever germs I, I had, and she got sick as well. And she looked at me with sincerity and she says, oh, it's okay, I was planning on it anyway. And, <laughs> To which I responded, you were planning on getting sick? <laughs> no, just accept the apology. <laughs> so all of these things are not really what the full picture of peace is, but no matter how we define it, we know that we have a sense of a need for it. Because we live in a world where there's tension with family. There's, there's that person on your phone that you know you probably should call, and every time you see their name, you know you should, but you just don't. You know that we are living in a world where there happens to be a little bit of conflict in political discourse. You know that there is some sense of distance and alienation from God, from people, from creation. And so while we can't, it's hard to fully define peace, we do know that we need it. And so today, I want to explore a little bit what the shepherds might have heard 
when they listened to the song of peace being sung by the angelic army, what, what would their assumptions have been? Well, first of all, that word would not have been associated with hippies or Midwestern or tea, but it is the word shalom. It would have reminded them, in the passage it's the Greek word, but it would have reminded them of the biblical Hebrew word of shalom, which is a primary concept in scripture. And it's a beautiful picture of wholeness. It's a potent Hebrew concept of God bringing holistic flourishing. Cornelius Plantinga puts it this way. He says, it's the webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight. In other words, shalom is the right ordering of three relationships and the flourishing within those three relationships. It's flourishing in our relationship with God, in our relationship with other people, in our relationship with creation, and the shepherds would have heard the weight of those relationships in the word peace. And they would have other assumptions too because they would be stepping into that scene, into that moment, understanding the biblical narrative and how God is a God of peace and is on a mission to restore shalom. And they would come to that moment with three big assumptions from the biblical story. One is that we are created for peace. Two is that there had been a terrible vandalism of peace. And three, that there was a promise of peace that God was gonna restore what had been broken. And so I wanna walk us through and narrate some of what might have been on their mind as they were hearing the angels proclaiming peace on earth coming through the Messiah. So let's start with the first one, created for peace. The shepherds likely would have been very familiar with Genesis 1 and 2, the creation narrative of scripture, which we talk about a lot here because it's foundational. It gives you a glimpse of what God's creational intent is, what his intent is for the world. And we see over, over six days, God creates a masterpiece. And like an artist, he crafts every good and true and beautiful thing that we've encountered like crisp apples, the powerful muscles in the, the leg of a horse, oxygen that we breathe into our lungs, the backspin of a basketball, all has its origins in the order and beauty of creation that God instituted in the beginning. But the centerpiece of his masterpiece is humanity. Adam and Eve, he creates them in his image to, in some way, they are distinct from the rest of creation and like God in some ways, reflecting his character, reflecting his image. They are the masterpiece of his creation and they were intended, what we see in Genesis 1 and 2, to flourish within these three relationships. Their relationship with God, their relationship with each other, and their relationship with the physical creation, the, the trees, the ground under their feet, the very blood cells in their body, that all three of these they are to relate to in a flourishing way. And so we see, first of all, a flourishing relationship with God. Look at the intimacy of the words that are used as it describes 
the creation of humanity by God. In Genesis 2-7, it says, Then the Lord formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed life into, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. God sinks his hands into the soil of the earth and pulls out some clay and with care creates this unique masterpiece of, of humanity that shows what he's like. But into this masterpiece, it's not a standalone statue, but he actually intimately breathes and animates the life of this thing with his own breath. And it becomes a living thing that is created to live in communion and union and relationship with God. And then it says, and then the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made it to spring every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Not only does God form the human being with this intimate relationship, but he puts his hands back into the ground and creates a garden for which, in which that human can flourish, where oxygen would come from the plants and be drawn into his lungs and food would survive, food would be a part of the survival as uh, they ate legumes and leaves and whatever it was that they were chewing on. It was delightful and it was a gift from God to them, and they flourished in relationship with God without any hindrance. Genesis 3.8 alludes to the fact that God would come and walk with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day, experience such peace with God that it's God is right there, and you're going on evening and afternoon walks. It is hard for us to even comprehend what this would have been like, because even the, the smallest sample of the best of our, even the best of our relationships are just a small sample of what the true relationship with God and being known by God is like. You know what it's like of sitting at the table with someone that you really love and you just linger for a long time, not wanting to go away because the conversation that's happening there is so deep and that doesn't even begin to describe the nearness that Adam and Eve experienced in the presence of God as they walked with him in the cool of the day. But then we see that they're not just created for relationship with God, but out of an overflow, they're created for relationship with each other. The only time in, God, in this passage that God says something is not good is in verse 18 where it says, it is not good that Adam would be alone. And so he creates Adam and Eve, the very seed of, of all humanity that would grow out of it. And out of the act of intimacy would grow human community so that human beings would know each other and be known by each other. And the very way that their relationship is described in verse 25 is that and the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. Now, that's even awkward for us to hear, but it conveys in that moment such a depth of being known by somebody and knowing somebody and loving them completely. Knowing them fully and loving them completely, that there was no need for shame and for hiding of any kind. 
Can you imagine what that would be like? We can't imagine it, but in those days, they couldn't imagine the things that exist in our time. Think about it. For Adam and Eve, words like abuse, school shootings, racism, war would be absent from their dictionary. They would be as imaginary as unicorns and baby Yodas. You couldn't even fathom that. Because that is what the relationship was intended to be like, human beings knowing each other and being known by each other, flourishing in community. That's a, that is what shalom is like. And furthermore, they had a right, flourishing relationship with creation. Genesis 2.15 says that the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And that simple phrase conveys the idea that Adam and Eve, uh, humanity, is put in the garden in part to care for the garden. They have a relationship with it to draw the potential out of it. It cares for them and gives them the food and the oxygen and the beauty that they need, but they have this unique commissioned relationship to cultivate the potential out of that garden and to care for God's world. And we see that the work that they are doing and the family that they're making in the garden and the, the life that they are living is one that is without pain, that has purpose. It's where it, it would be hard for us to imagine, but just imagine each day going to work and delighting in every single task and the fruits of your labor to where you get to the end of the day and it seems like it just went by because you are so locked in and enjoying what you're doing. And then you celebrate, you feast, sitting on a balcony in weather that's better than San Diego's, in food that's better than a Michelin star rated restaurant. And each breeze would remind you of the life that God had breathed into your non-asthmatic lungs. And with each bite of food, you would taste the glory of your creator. No pain, no alienation, fruitful work. This was what humanity and the world was created for. And the shepherds would have known of that vision of flourishing, that intention that God has for his creation. But they would also know, as well as you and I, that that is not the reality that we live in right now but that there had been a great vandalism that has happened to God's peace, to God's shalom, that happened in the fall, and they would be well aware of that too, the fall that we see in Genesis 3. And what we see there is that Adam and Eve were here in this garden buffet where they could enjoy everything that they looked at. They were naming animals. They were plucking fruit off of trees and enjoying it, doing good work. But then, God had said, there's only one tree that I don't want you to eat from. Only one. And Adam and Eve, leading the rest of humanity in their rebellion, functionally gave the middle finger to God, turned from him, turned toward that tree, and as they sunk their teeth into that fruit and the water dripped off their chin, Sin leaked into all of creation. And sin and the effects of sin 
and the alienation that they experienced from God in that moment began to set off a domino effect of pain and injustice and brokenness that would diminish shalom and affect all of life. We see the alienation starting with their alienation from God. They, this God that they had walked with in the cool of the day they're now hiding from, as it says in verse, uh, chapter three, verse eight, that they are hiding from God. The very leaves that he created, they are now using for cover as they hide from this God that they had walked with in intimacy. And in that moment, it wasn't just them hiding from God, but it was the first domino in the history of humanity of us hiding from God, turning from God, and, and experiencing the alienation and disconnection from the God that we were created to know and to worship. And they took their hands, the, the hands that God gave to make beautiful art and to throw footballs and to hold babies and to mold his world into something beautiful, we took those very hands and started to build statues out of things that God had created. And they started to bow down to those statues and worship them, as we see all throughout Scripture. And while we ourselves might not be making statues that we worship, there are many other things that can be our idols that we shape through our human culture making that we worship instead. Money, power, nations, um, success, you name it. And so we see an alienation from God. But we also see that there's an alienation from each other. The way that Adam and Eve respond to each other has now introduced shame into the mix. That they are starting to disconnect from each other because their first response is that they start to hide from each other. They start sewing fig leaves and making clothes and hiding from one another. That sense of feeling very vulnerable with each other now. And then they also begin to blame one another. When God asks what happened, they begin to blame one another. And that first marital spat was the first domino in what would become all of our social alienation and our social problems that sin had affected our relationship with each other as human beings. And because what happened there in the garden, now we exist in a world where somebody right now is feeling uh, the sadness of reading a terrible comment, a racist comment that a friend posted on Facebook. Someone right now is about to speak such harsh and vicious words to their children, they might not recover from it. Right now, in this moment, in the buildings that are around us. Right now, someone is sitting somewhere twisting together with the hands God has given them, some wires on a bomb that's gonna end up on a roadside somewhere. Right now, because of sin and our alienation from each other, someone is pulling out a dating app on their phone, knowing that if they hit send, it's going to crush their family as they have an affair, and they're gonna hit send. We live in a world where we are separated from one another. Brokenness and sin has entered and seeped into our relationship, and it has even seeped into the physical creation. Adam and Eve were, were 
given responsibility over the physical creation. And as they fell, so the physical world fell. And their life of work without pain, their, their life um, without physical brokenness and pain went away and the curse affected all the physical creation as it's described as a place of thorns and thistles. And because of that, we know that that's true. We experience that. Many of us in our very knees or shoulders right now are feeling pain that we don't even need to open a page of the Bible to know something is messed up about this world. I mean, this is gonna freak you out, but right now there are bacteria in this room that are seeking to assassinate you in this very moment. Our relationship with the physical world is broken and destroyed because of sin. And the, the shepherds, when they heard of that word of peace, they would have known that we were created for peace, that in the fall there was a vandalism of peace, but that there was hope. There was a promise of peace, and it was getting restated over and over again in different ways in Scripture. And one of the ways that might have come to their mind was in Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7, the very passage that we often quote around Christmas time. And it says this, for, for, unto, uh, for to us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Knowing some of the background of what was happening when Isaiah wrote these words, they would have known that, that those words were written in a time when there wasn't a lot of hope, that there was a lot of corruption, there was a lot of idolatry. It was incredibly sad. And they knew that God had promised to send a king who was gonna make things right, but those kings kept failing, including the king in this context, Ahaz. And this promise is that out of his lineage, and ultimately the lineage of David, the, 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 old, the first king, there would become a, a new king, a child that would be born out of that lineage, who, whose reign would be so lofty and so beautiful that it would be described as comprehensive justice and peace, not just for that small community of Israel, but for the, for the nations. And the way it's described in beautiful poetic language is that he would be the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. This royal language that, that is almost too lofty to be given to a single human being. And that would bear out over time after king, when king after king after king would fail and not live up to this. But then one day, from the, a child is being born, from the lineage of David, not many people knew about it, but some shepherds walking around a hill looked out into the night sky and saw an army of angels singing about, this is the one who has come to bring peace. This is the, the prince of peace who's come to make things right with God, make things right with each other, make things right with his creation, and he is come, and we are celebrating that in this moment. He is the one who brings peace on earth and to, who restores those relationships. 
And then if you were to read the Gospels and see the way that the life of this baby would unfold, it would be very clear that he is the one, this great prince of peace, this authority that makes us right with God, each other, and creation. We see Jesus in the Gospels reconciling people to God, reconnecting them to God. The world, the humanity that had wandered alone, away from God for so many centuries, now was walking in the presence of God as the little toddler feet of Jesus began to hit the ground and he walked among us. He was present. He showed the face of God in his life. And then through his life, his death, and his resurrection, he atoned for the very sin that ruptured all of those relationships. And then we see the reconciliation with others. That Jesus is, is, is seeing those who've been cast out in society and welcoming, welcoming them back home. He placed his hands on sick lepers. He feasted with criminals. He transformed terrorists. And he created kinship and friendship and family amongst former political and ethnic enemies. And then you see the reconciliation of creation. This broken, messed up creation being made right as Jesus placed his hand on people and sent diseases into remission. He touched the eyes of the blind and allowed them to see for the first time in their life a Jerusalem sunset. And then through his very death, he assassinates death, the very, the most broken thing about the creation. And then we see when he's resurrected, He's giving a foretaste of what is to come. In his first coming, he initiated his mission to bring shalom, to bring peace back to earth, and it was beautiful. And then in his second coming is the promise that he will completely fulfill it, wipe away the tears from the eyes, bring us completely into union with God, with each other, and with creation. But the question is, as people who live in the in-between, the in-between of Jesus' coming, what are we to do? Well, what Jesus does is he, his commitment to peacemaking is so potent and is so rich throughout Scripture that what he does is he forms a people, a church, that the Prince of Peace is going to form this community, and this community is functionally going to be an embassy of his peace filled with ambassadors of peace. This is the very language that's used in 2 Corinthians, when it says, 2 Corinthians 5, when it says that, that through Christ, uh, Christ reconciled us to God and gave, himself, gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself and not counting their trespasses against them, but entrusting us with the message of reconciliation. And then it uses this language that we are ambassadors for Christ and that God is making his appeal through us. In other words, that the church, if Christ is the prince of peace, we are the embassy of peace and we are ambassadors of peace everywhere where he's sending us to go. So where is he sending us? Before I talk about where he's sending us, because I think that's an important conversation, 
Let's, let's talk a little bit about the job description of a peacemaker, of an ambassador of peace. The Bible is filled with beautiful peacemaking teaching. It calls God the God of peace. The gospel is called the gospel of peace. Jesus declares peace upon the uh, blessing upon the peacemakers in the Beatitudes. Calls us to, as far as it depends on us, be at peace with all people. Calls us to love our enemies. And then there's this rich teaching that says that God's people, as peacemakers, we are the ones who are quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. That we forgive. That we take the log out of our eye and we look at our own sin with a greater scrutiny than we look at others. That we're actively seeking restoration, we're actively seeking justice, and we're actively speaking the truth. And it's not just a passivity, but it's an active movement to help bring a sense of shalom where there's been rupture. Now, that is the, the job description of an ambassador of peace, of a peacemaker. Now, sometimes there's fake ambassadors. You may have heard about this, but there is a, um, there's like a spam email going around of someone pretending to be an ambassador of the United States who is so concerned that you've spent too much money on your travels that he wants to send you some money. Now, all you have to do is like send him a check first as a little deposit and then he's gonna send you some money. Most people, when you look at that, you're gonna be like, there's no way that that's an ambassador. That person might be using the name, might be calling themselves that, but they are not actually uh, an ambassador, it's obvious. And in the same way that we have peacemakers, we also have peace fakers who claim to be making peace, but actually what you're trying to do is just keep the peace. It's the fake smile. It's the, I'm gonna avoid talking about hard and heavy things uh, just because I don't wanna get into it. It's about the people who see the sin and dysfunction and abuse going on and refuse to step in and say something because they just want to like get along. That is not what God is calling us to. And it's not the type of peacemaker that Jesus is. Jesus is the peacemaker who moves toward the brokenness, not ignores the brokenness, to bring restoration in our relationship with God, with each other, and with creation. And so as his ambassadors, I want to let you know some of the places where Jesus is commissioning you to go be his messenger, his ambassador of peace. Number one is work. You're going to spend 90,000 hours of your life, many people will, working. Those 90,000 hours could be the very means through which you serve and love your neighbor and help bring a sense of shalom to the world. If not that, still we know that our workplaces are often a petri dish of like gossip and slander. And even if it's not about the goods and the services, it's uh, being a peacemaker who speaks about people who are created in the image of God in our work settings. The second one is the home, is with family. I know a lot of people brought their families here and they're like, oh no. Don't say too much. N nervous laughter right there. 
But I know that many of us are headed out right now um, to go visit family. We're going to take a flight or a trip. And what if we reimagined that flight or that drive as a mission of peace? And you might be thinking, send me anywhere but there. Like, send me as an ambassador to, like, Fallujah, Iraq, in the middle of rocket fire, but I do not want to go there. Because oftentimes negotiating where Christmas will happen is harder than negotiating peace treaties between warring countries. That there are gonna be tensions between siblings that are worse than the tension on the border of North and South Korea. But regardless, we are being sent into these places that we call family. And uh, it would be easy to function as a peace faker and just to smile but we can, as Christ has moved towards us, we can move towards others with forgiveness, kindness, grace, and love. Having real and good, candid conversations. I'm not saying go ruin Christmas by blasting everybody with all the stuff, but I am saying as Christ has moved towards you, move towards uh, those with whom you need peace often in our families. And then here's the one, the big one, where Christ is sending us to be ambassadors of peace. 2020, the year 2020. And I don't wanna go there. At least I didn't wanna go there. But I'm growing in anticipation of going into 2020 because we know that this is an election year and it is gonna be hard and it is going to be intense. And 2016 was really hard. Almost half of the pastors I know almost quit in 2016. As people in the body of Christ began uh, to withdraw from each other and have communion with whatever their political ideology was instead. As people began to withdraw from churches that had a sense of, of differing opinion and just going off into a church where your own opinion is, is reflected back to you often and often. And there's a temptation to want to move into 2020 and to be peacemakers and to avoid every hard thing that's going to come up. But I actually believe, as I've been praying for the church, that this is a beautiful moment to show the distinctiveness of the Prince of Peace as we live and flourish together, as we know one another, as we reconcile with one another, as we speak truth to one another. Imagine if, imagine if we were a community that feasted together in the midst of a world that is trying to devour one another. Imagine if we were a community that was committed to face-to-face -to -face conversations rather than Facebook debates. Imagine if, in a world of political ideology, we gave our allegiance to the Prince of Peace rather than our various political pundits, which function as prophets more than scripture often does for us. Imagine if we lived in community, that we actually had real conversations with one another. And this is some stuff we're gonna push into, of reconciliation and peace that doesn't avoid hard topics and justice, but where we are committed to coming to the table and being at the table with each other and feasting and having communion and declaring that the Prince of Peace is the one that we follow. And then being shaped by one another, being sent out into the world and as unique peacemakers in the midst of a very difficult time. I believe that Jesus is gonna be beautified in this next season if we push into those things.
But in order to do those things, in order for ambassadors of peace to go into the hard places where it's needed, it's not about skill, it's not about technique, although those things are important. There's one thing that we need, and it's to follow in the examples of the shepherds. It's to go put our eyes on Jesus, to go be with him. Because what it says at the end of that passage, as the angels go away and they're standing there in shock, it says, as the angels went away from there into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known in us. And they had to behold Jesus. And truly, if we are gonna move into the world as peacemakers, the way that you do it is by beholding and being infatuated with and moving toward Jesus. And as we move toward the Prince of Peace, the Prince of Peace will move us out and toward the world that needs peace. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful that you are, that you are the Lord over all creation, that there's not one inch of the earth that isn't yours, and your posture towards this broken, messed up world is that of one who is going to repair and restore all of that that is messed up. I pray for those in this room who feel alienated from you, distant from you, that they would get a sense of your presence this morning. I pray for those of us who, who have tension and brokenness in our relationships with friends and family, that you would, you would miraculously bring reconciliation and peace to those things. I pray that you would bring people to mind right now, that we should not let this day pass before reaching out to. And God, we thank you also that the disconnection that we have even from our own bodies and from this physical world will one day be mended by you. You are the great Prince of Peace, Jesus, and we praise you. Amen.